As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 2, Star Chamber. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we looked at Charles I's attempts to raise money without calling on Parliament, and we saw the political fallout. Thousands of householders were surprised to learn that they should have been knighted years ago, and were fined for their failure. Many subjects were surprised to learn that they were illegally resident on royal lands, and this was despite their families living there for generations. They too were fined. Monopolies returned, the court of wards took on greater powers, and most infamous of all, ship money returned. This was the ancient right of the king, which allowed him to conscript a ship, or the cost of a ship, from England's coastal counties and sink ports in times of war. As we saw, Charles's government demanded ship money from every county in England, for multiple years in a row, while the kingdom was officially at peace. We covered some of the reasons why the government felt some justification for demanding ship money, but we also saw how the policy was contested in the courts and was an embarrassingly close call. This week, we will see how the Crown's approach to politics and religion, so inseparable in early modern England, only reinforced the fears of critics who believed that Charles was a danger to the liberties of his subjects. The religious situation in England, never mind the other two kingdoms, was complex. Again, I won't exhaustively repeat what we covered over the last season, but when Charles came to the throne, many of his subjects were divided over what the Church of England was meant to be. This division was far from a new development. Elizabeth had wrestled with the same controversy, as had James, but it dogged each of Charles's first parliaments. Some believed the Reformation was not yet complete, and gazed longingly at the Scottish Kirk and its Calvinist practices. These people were commonly, and derisively, known as Puritans. Others thought that the Reformation had gone quite far enough, thank you very much, and maybe some of the rituals and splendour could be revived. 
These were often referred to as the Laudian, Ceremonialists, or Arminian faction. And of course, there were the people in the middle, who were no less pious than their countrymen, but who may not have been so invested in the controversy, and just wished to attend church in peace. Charles was a supporter of the Ceremonialists. Shortly after the 1628 Parliament denounced them, Charles promoted eight noted anti-Calvinists to bishoprics, including William Lord and Richard Neal. In 1632, Neal was promoted further, becoming Archbishop of York, and in 1633, Lord was similarly promoted to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. This meant that the two most powerful positions in the English church, aside from the king, were under the control of suspected Arminians. Along the lower rungs of the church the same can be seen, with numerous anti-Calvinists being appointed to bishoprics. In contrast, only two Calvinists became bishops during personal rule, and the king only showed favour to one Jacobean-era Calvinist bishop. Whether the so-called Arminians were actually Arminian, that is, followers of the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius, is almost besides the point. Lord and others repeatedly and strenuously denied that they were Arminian. Because of course they would. It would be political suicide to say that they were. But, as Harris puts it, the style of worship they encouraged, their emphasis on the beauty of holiness, and their exaltation of the clerical estate and of the importance of sacraments as channels of grace requiring clergy to administer, could all be squared with Arminian theology. Arminian remains a useful descriptive label, therefore. The important thing is that their critics labelled them as Arminian, and much like the enemies of the Puritans dictated their label, so too for the Arminians. If it helps, just imagine air quotes around Arminian from here on. The important thing to remember is that Laudians, Arminians, what have you, they were anti-Calvinist. The Church of England, from the perspective of Charles and Lord, was in a sorry state. The physical fabric of the church was dilapidated. Countless parish churches were in disrepair, abandoned, their roofs fallen in, or otherwise unfit for use. What land the church still held was often leased on very low rents, with these rents fixed for generations. For many of the smaller parishes, the financial situation was dire. On this, Puritans and Laudians were in agreement. More than half the positions in the church earned less than £10 a year, and this was when a tolerable standard of living required £40. This was hardly going to appeal to potential churchmen. Partly, this was down to laity involvement in church finances. Rents on church land went towards keeping a minister, and as we just mentioned, these were very low. Tithes were also set by the laity, who also had to pay them, so they had an incentive to keep them as low as possible. The Laudian reforms were wide-ranging and varied. In 1629, 1633, and again in 1634, the Crown repeatedly ordered bishops to reside in their sees, unless they were needed at court. The 1634 order had the added demand that leases on church land be shortened. Montague, Bishop of Chichester, went so far as to find technicalities in the leases that allowed him to renew them under more profitable terms. Shorter leases, alongside bringing in greater income through rent increases and fines, would, Lord hoped, 
increased the respect the laity had for the clergy, if they had to negotiate with them over their rent. The clergy were given the ability to sue their congregation for their full tithes, and the government tried to intervene in the Puritan practice of funding urban positions with parish income. On a political level, the government tried to prevent the laity from having too much influence over church appointments. They were particularly focused on Puritan communities. Lord and Charles burnished the prestige of the church by giving clergy positions of secular power, mostly on the Privy Council and in the judiciary. It's in the restoration of the fabric of the church that the Laudian reforms are perhaps the most famous. Now, even Lord's critics would admit that dilapidated churches, roofs fallen in and overgrown with plants, needed to be fixed. The clergy were instructed to report the state of their parishes to their superiors, and were ordered to restore them to a workable order. More than half of the church buildings in Neal's Diocese of York needed to have some level of repairs made on them, for example. But Lord's critics diverged from the Archbishop on the question of how grand the churches should be. Lord wanted to beautify the churches, to return many of the elements of pre-Reformation decoration. Stained glass windows, showing images from the Bible, were to return. Communion tables were to take on more importance. They were railed off, draped in cloth, and placed in the east end of the church. Pews were turned to the east, and those that blocked the view of the communion table's new location were removed. The communion tables became almost like altars, while actual stone altars returned too. A parish church in Herefordshire found the old Henrician altar, which had spent the last few decades being used to make cheese, and had it re-consecrated and restored to the church. Church silverplate, carved wooden screens, statues, painted images on the walls, the whole nine yards, it was all ordered to come back. This wasn't new, this trend had been growing even before Charles's accession, but it only picked up the pace with Lord at the helm. Besides theological opposition, on the grounds that these were either popish trappings or otherwise unnecessary, there were financial and practical considerations too. All of this cost money, and parishioners often found themselves expected to contribute more to keep their minister comfortable, and finance these Laudian reforms. Repairing the roof of their church was one thing, but installing new stained glass, commissioning artists, and railing off communion tables was quite another. Larger-scale constructions were likewise expensive, and the burden of the cost was dispersed among the wealthy congregation. The rebuilding of St Paul's Cathedral had been put on hold by James because of this expense. To solve the problem, Charles launched a commission in 1631 to collect voluntary contributions. Much like the loan in forced loan, the voluntary in voluntary contributions was not strictly accurate, and donors were threatened into generosity. In this, we can see a completely mundane reason why Laudian reforms might irritate people, aside from their religious ramifications. Another source of income for these building projects came with the levying of fines from the High Commission, the church court which enforced behaviour among the clergy. The High Commission targeted those who failed to meet the standards of the Church of England, though it wasn't aimed solely at Calvinist dissidents. 
clergy with reputations for drunkenness found themselves disciplined by the commission, as did priests who conducted secret marriages or christened bastard children. Rumours that a vicar practised magic could see him before the commission, while lay people could find themselves in trouble for a variety of theological reasons. A printer who distributed a poor quality print of the Bible was punished. Not only did he use substandard paper, but the wording was spectacularly wrong. For example, one of the Ten Commandments read, Thou shalt commit adultery, while another passage describes God exposing himself. From 1611 to 1640, 80% of these cases came about from subordinates and parishioners, displeased by the behaviour of their clergy. The High Commission was not, therefore, solely an instrument of government persecution. But it was that as well, and many Calvinists found themselves hauled before the High Commission. Even with this wave of decoration, there were still rules, and some things remained out of bounds. Lord and Neil repeatedly had to order more elaborate furnishings destroyed, such as pews for wealthy parishioners, which sat them higher than the communion table. This was God's house, after all, and that's just rude. If the restoration of the beauty of the Church of England is the most famous aspect of Lordianism, perhaps a strong contender are the theological reforms Lord and his allies implemented. Much of this was, in fairness to Lord, long-standing policy. For instance, the clergy were expected to practice according to the Book of Common Prayer, and to obey the canons of 1604. This included kneeling for communion, bowing at Christ's name, isolating the communion table from the congregation, these kinds of rituals. For the Puritans, there was no biblical reasoning for this. These were popish trappings that should have been swept away in the Reformation. All of this was all well and good, but how would Lord and his allies know if a parish far away was actually following the orders? By a rigorous system of visitations and reports. Insisting that bishops reside in their sees was one part of this. Laudian bishops sent their own agents, not trusting local church wardens to be truthful. Both Lord and Neil repeatedly toured their diocese in person, and woe betide a minister if they were found to be lacking. They could find themselves before the High Commission, censured or fined, or in the worst cases, defrocked and imprisoned. But it was in the past that Lord sought justification for these reforms. Repeatedly he claimed that he was doing nothing but restoring previously established standards. Lordian theory was based heavily on precedent, and not just the precedents of James and Elizabeth, but of the Church Fathers and the Apostles. In this way, Lord could present his policies as merely returning to the way things had been done in more pious times. To argue against these precedents was to be tarred with that terrible slur of early modern religion, innovation. And this could be laid solely at the feet of Church dissidents. On the flip side, the Puritans considered many of the Laudian policies to be innovative, and at least in the case of the communion tables, in Harris's view, this argument stands up. Some Laudian clergy went further than others. One Samuel Horde, who was an Arminian, defended the reforms in 1637 by stating that the church authorities, including the king, had the power to alter the forms of worship as they thought best. As I said earlier, whether Lord was actually Arminian, 
or whether he turned a blind eye to Arminianism, is besides the point. His critics believed that he was, and he did. But his critics' greatest fear was that Lord and Charles were setting the stage for returning England to Catholicism, and in this they were almost certainly wrong. As I covered last season, Catholics and crypto-Catholics held positions at court and in government. The Queen, Henrietta Maria, was herself Catholic, and her presence extended a certain level of toleration. However, Lord himself was not a friend of Rome. In 1622, Lord had a very public disagreement with a Jesuit, and defended the Church of England. His views on the matter were published again and again, until at least 1639. He publicly criticised the Queen's cohort of Catholics and her protection of English Catholics, and he almost certainly had a role in the expansion of recusancy fines. Many Laudians used their opposition to Catholicism as evidence that their reforms were not Catholic in nature, and while this was definitely a tactical choice, it's still a valid point. Laudians insisted that the similarities between Laudian reforms and Catholicism were merely superficial. The meaning behind actions was what mattered. Making the sign of the cross was not a Catholic act, it was reverence for the cross, whereas Catholics worshipped the cross and so committed idolatry. When Catholics knelt, they knelt in the service of the devil. When Lord knelt, he knelt for God. This kind of thing. As I say this, I'm struck by the similarities with witchcraft beliefs at this time, in the fantasies of some demonologists and witch hunters, witches perverted Christian rituals by addressing them to Satan. What was a miraculous act from a priest was damnable magic from a witch. The intention behind it, at least theoretically, was the sin. But that's an aside, and a perfect plug for the History of Witchcraft podcast if you want to learn more. While Lord was no friend of Rome, he was also not its inveterate enemy. The Pope was an Antichrist, yes, but he wasn't THE Antichrist. Montague, the Bishop of Chichester, listed the Pope and the Ottomans as equally Antichrist, and Lord considered both to be equal threats to England and the English Church. Catholicism was flawed, especially compared to the Church of England, but it was at least still Christian. Catholics were misled potential converts rather than uncompromising enemies. This attitude, combined with the Laudian reforms, were welcomed by Catholics both in England as well as elsewhere. Many believed what Lord's critics believed, that he was leading the Stuart kingdoms back to Rome. The Pope tried to make Lord a cardinal not once, but twice, which only reinforced the fears of Lord's critics. Many of the religious policies of Charles were, superficially, continuations of his father's. For example, the appointment of clergy as justices of the peace reached its peak during James's reign. Where Charles fell short was in the implementation. James had deliberately sought a balance within the church, favouring Calvinists and anti-Calvinists with some level of equilibrium. Charles dispensed with the equilibrium and promoted anti-Calvinists above all else. Another is in theology. Enforcing adherence to the 1604 canons and the Book of Common Prayer were official Jacobean policy, but James hadn't pressed the matter. Charles and Lord did. The Book of Sports, which allowed limited recreation on Sundays, was another policy of James's, revived and reinforced by his son. 
Under the Book of Sports, dancing, archery, games, and other suitably acceptable delights would be permitted on the day of rest, after church services. To Puritans, the Sabbath should be spent in service and worship of God, and their king was encouraging disorder. It's true that this was just a reissue and a reprinting of the 1617 Book of Sports, but once again, James had allowed for regional differences when implementing it, and magistrates could uphold bans of Sunday events if they saw fit. Charles saw Sunday as the one day of the week when his subjects could relax from work, and without being able to let off steam, they would breed dissent and grow idle. As a republishing of James's book, it included the late king's accusation that it was the puritanical who caused trouble, not ordinary people wanting to relax. The Book of Sports was one controversy that did not divide neatly along Laudian and Puritan lines. Many conformists agreed that the Sabbath should be kept godly, and many Calvinists agreed that it was only reasonable to allow some recreation. These are just some of the ways that Charles and his leading churchmen sought to alter England's moral and religious fabric. But how was all of this received? This is tricky to navigate, because like in all things, people make more of a fuss when they disagree with something than if they're fine with it. The problem is only exacerbated by the fact that Puritans were prolific writers to each other and to the wider world, and so more of their thoughts survive for study. Lord's approach to English Catholics, Harris argues, was a sensible one. An olive branch had to be offered. Catholics were a substantial minority, and many of the kingdom's leading figures were Catholic. If the Crown persecuted Catholics to the extent many Puritans wished they would, in the event of another war with a Catholic power, England's enemies would find fertile soil for insurrection. Within the Church, Lord not only thought his reforms were necessary, but that they would be popular. To some extent, he was right to think so. Not only is criticism always more popular than quiet acceptance, but criticism of a single aspect of Crown policy did not mean criticism of every single other aspect. The Book of Sports was extremely popular in many parts of the kingdom, and traditional English events like Morris dancing had a resurgence of popularity during personal rule. It's also likely that many welcomed the return of the ceremonial and aesthetic side of church services, with its stunning stained glass and beautiful paintings adorning the walls. On a theological level, the resurgence of the idea that salvation was available to everyone and not just a predestined elect would surely have been welcomed by people unconvinced of their own godliness. It's also true that, despite a more favourable view of Puritans having developed over the last few decades, they were frustrating and unbearable for their non-godly neighbours. Think Miriam Margulies' character in Blackadder 2. Cold is God's way of telling us to burn more Catholics. In everyday circumstances, the godly could be vocal critics of their neighbours' sinful ways, and that's annoying and especially when in positions of authority they actively tried to enforce their standards of morality. Antagonistic, confrontational, and often bitterly disliked, as Harris puts it. Anti-Puritan ballads and pamphlets were ever-present in this period, and their popularity suggests that there was a market for them. The stereotype of a Puritan, in the words of one of these libels, is reprinted by Harris. A Puritan is an imperfect kind of Christian. Indeed, some will have him an uncircumcised Jew, 
for he affects much the Jewish religion. Hypocrisy is his best tutor, which hath so well trained him up in the noble science of offences that he now scorns, neither to yield until truth, sense, or reason his greatest adversary, whom he prosecutes with deadly hatred, is all conformity to good orders, which he only trembles at, not for fear, but for want of conscience. It goes on to describe the preaching of the Puritans as holy to consist in long prayers to little senses, long sermons to little profit, long-winded exercises to little judgment, long graces to small purpose, and long journeys to sanctify his Sabbath. But it must be a man after his own humour, a prime man in the congregation of the presbytery. Don't make the mistake of thinking there was only one kind of stereotypical Puritan. Oh, no, no. From Harris, quote, The lion Puritan, who lives Machiavel's aphorisms and takes liberty in railing against bishops. The bull-beef Puritan, who loves not to work unless on the Sabbath. The goat Puritan, who will wait on his holy sister and retire with her into the most secret places, except in the summer when a convenient haycock serves just as well. Other types included the Sheep Puritan, Peacock Puritan, Turkey Puritan, Your Lapwing or Bastard Plover Puritan, the Cocko Puritan, Crocodile Puritan, Serpentine Puritan, and Goose Puritan. Alongside publications like these, we know that Puritans had their enemies from the fact that they were reported to their authorities by their parishioners. Those preachers found themselves before the High Commission, and were punished in one way or another. So, Harris sums this up quite nicely. Quote, Measuring the degree of support for the Laudian initiatives is thus no easy task. Clearly, there was some, and perhaps much more than usually recognised. If there had been limited support, the Laudian reforms would not have been so successfully implemented, and thus not have proved as divisive as they did. He goes on, in other words, Laudianism might have proved so destabilising not because it was extremely unpopular, but because it did have a certain popular appeal. We can't end a discussion of the Laudian church reforms without looking at the most infamous case of official persecution. If the Hamden case we discussed last episode was the standout dispute over Charles's financial policy, then the trial of William Prynne is its counterpart for his religious. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? 
Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. William Prynne was a lawyer who published the Histriomastics in 1632. In this, Prynne decried the court culture of masks, dancers and plays, blaming the bad influence of Queen Henrietta Maria. He also complained about hunting, festivals, morris dancing, bonfires, the usual stuff. It was because of these sins, and the ill advice of evil counsellors which encouraged them, that God had sent the plague among the people of England. For publishing his History on Mastics, Prynne was brought before the court of Star Chamber. I've mentioned Star Chamber a few times. Star Chamber was made up of privy councillors as well as judges, and it received its name from the decorative starred ceiling. It differed from most other Stuart courts in quite a few terrifying ways. Cases were held in private. There were no juries. There were no witnesses. There was no right of appeal. Star Chamber could not sentence anyone to death, but almost any punishment short of execution was on the table. Imprisonment, fines, flogging, mutilation, the works. In the 1624 case of a Catholic lawyer found guilty by Star Chamber of saying, King Henry VIII did piss the Protestant religion out of his codpiece, the lawyer had his ears cut off, his forehead branded with a B for blasphemer, he was whipped, his nose was slit, and he was fined £10,000. Towards the end of personal rule in 1638, another Catholic was fined £1,000, was pilloried and whipped, had his ears cropped, and he was jailed for calling the king a Catholic and lamenting that the gunpowder plot hadn't succeeded. Star Chamber under Charles gained extra powers, making it even more difficult for defendants to uh, defend themselves. Again, like much of personal rule, Charles drew on the example of his father and what James had said he wanted to do. James had said he wanted to reform Star Chamber in 1616, but he never did. Star Chamber could prosecute anyone. That was the point. Injustices which would otherwise go unpunished, say because the defendants were justices of the peace, or high nobility, were received in Star Chamber. Two JPs who were found to have wrongfully condemned two women in 1628 by suppressing witnesses were fined £200 each, which was paid to their victims as compensation. In 1631, a farmer was fined for artificially inflating the price of his grain in order to profit from the increased demand. Star Chamber did not condemn arbitrarily, and there was a substantial body of precedent and legislation which dictated how it was to operate. However, it was still a terrifying weapon to wield against enemies of the government, and it was meant to be. 
where many of the charges that brought people before Star Chamber were crimes in their own right, and could have been prosecuted under common law in common law courts, the punishments which could be meted out in Star Chamber were much, much harsher, with the exception of the death penalty. The brandings, mutilations, and massive fines were intended to instill terror. Ears would not grow back. The branded would bear their crimes on their skin for the rest of their lives, and only the richest could hope, dream, to get out from under the debt of their fines. These were intended as deterrents. Relatively few people found themselves before Star Chamber, but those who did, and were condemned, faced extraordinary punishments. William Prynne was far from the only high-profile case brought before Star Chamber. One Alexander Leighton published a book which railed against the bishops, the Queen, several religious policies, Charles's foreign policy, and the royal supremacy over the Church. Leighton admitted he was the author, but claimed he had no ill intention. Leighton could have been condemned in a common law court for treason. His writings were certainly seditious, but instead he was brought before Star Chamber. So Leighton avoided execution, but he was instead twice placed in a pillory, where he was whipped, his ears cut off, his nose slit, his cheeks were branded with SS for sower of sedition, and then he was imprisoned for life. Oh, and he was fined £10,000. This was obviously awful for Leighton, but it did wonders for his book sales. Like the modern Streisand effect, the public were suddenly very interested to read the words which had led to such brutality, and despite official bans, Leighton's words now reached many more people. Prynne himself quoted from Leighton's work, but this certainly didn't help his case. When Prynne came before Star Chamber in 1634, after a year in the Tower of London, he was described as worse than the devil, fined £5,000, had his Oxford degree revoked, pilloried once in Cheapside, and then again in Westminster, and during one of these sessions his ears were cropped and copies of his seditious book were burned in front of him. Then, after almost choking on the smoke, he was sentenced to life in prison. Yet Prynne was not done. He spent the next few years writing books and pamphlets which were then smuggled out of confinement, copied on illegal prints, and distributed along underground networks of Puritan dissidents. Again, Prynne's conviction by the government only increased his profile, and made his works more worthwhile reading. All of this meant that Prynne once again found himself before Star Chamber, alongside John Bastwick and Henry Burton, two other Puritan critics of Laudianism and the Episcopacy. All three were condemned to be pilloried and to have their ears cut off before being returned to prison for life. Prynne would gain an additional punishment, as we will see. The three condemned men were led to the pillory on the 30th of June, 1637, and they were met by a vast crowd of sympathetic Londoners lining the streets holding flowers. Bastwick loudly protested his treatment, stating that he was being punished for speaking against the Pope, and even if he had, quote, as much blood as would swell the Thames, he would spill every drop in this cause. Prynne, while in the pillory, held court, lecturing the crowd on the intricacies of law, which must have been a bit difficult, and making his case that under previous monarchs, the punishment for libel 
was only £5,000 and a month's imprisonment, with no mutilation. What was worse, the Histriomastics, the book which had caused his initial conviction, had been approved by the authorities before publication. Now, in, quote, the disparity of our times, end quote, writing against the injustices of the church received this level of persecution. The three men now had their ears cut off. Prynne had what was left of his removed. Bastwick was asked by members of the crowd if he wanted the pillory to be lifted slightly, to make it easier on his neck while the executioner got to work. He politely declined. Burton was cut so close to the skin that one account says an artery was severed, and the crowd dipped cloth in his blood. Then came Prynne's special treatment. He was branded with the letters S and L on both cheeks. Seditious libeler. When the executioner approached with the glowing brand, Prynne stood his ground. Metaphorically, of course, he couldn't physically move from the pillory, so he did the next best thing. I have chosen rather to fear the fire of hell than the fire on earth. Come burn me, scorch me. I bear in my body the mark of the Lord Jesus. Not bad words in the face of a glowing brand. After some time bleeding and smoking slightly in the pillory, the three men were taken away. They were split up and sent to three remote castles, far from London. Carnarvon in Wales, Lanson in Cornwall, and Lancaster in northwest England. If the earlier conviction of Prynne had made his work more popular, then this second one was a cause celebre for critics of the government. The attitude of the crowd had worried the authorities, and the sympathy they had shown the convicted men was shared by spectators on their individual journeys. The government was so concerned that they would only become stronger examples of sedition, that the decision was made to remove the three dissidents from the mainland entirely. In August 1637, Bastwick was transferred to the Scilly Isles, while Burton and Prynne went to Guernsey and Jersey. If the government hoped that their critics would forget about the men and just remember the punishments, they would be disappointed. The three men would be quickly recalled from their island prisons by the Long Parliament as soon as they were able. Prynne and his fellow pillories, if that's a word, would not be the last to fall afoul of Star Chamber, though they were in the final ranks. Both Star Chamber and the High Commission became so toxic that they were abolished by the Long Parliament even before King Charles fled London. Next time, we will cross the Irish Sea and cover events during the rule of Lord Deputy Thomas Wentworth, as he tried to balance atop several different political and religious factions, while also dealing with the aftermath of Charles's wartime promises. There have been some changes in the House of Lords since the last episode. Thomas Kessler has been promoted from the Earl of Dorset to the Marquess of Dorset, Alan Goldstein has been promoted from the Earl of Southampton to the Marquess of Southampton. The House of Lords has also welcomed Michael, Baron, Meal, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Thank you, all three of you, and to all of my House of Lords. If you want to join their ranks, as always, you can go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica, and there, for $1 a month, you can get an ad-free feed, which you can just put into your favourite podcast app. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook, and you can email me at podbritannica at gmail.com. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the music used in the interval for the day's episode. 
to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.